Hey guys, this is week two of our Advent series. We've been looking at uh, sermons related to why Jesus had to come and what the incarnation is all about. And so today's message is entitled to serve, not to be served. So let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would speak through your words, speak through me. Lord, as I deliver this sermon to an empty room for those who can't come on Sunday. And so, Father, we just thank you that we have technology like this that we can take part of. We ask, God, that it would be soon that everybody could come back together in safety. God, we pray that you would work in our hearts during this time to show us what you want us to see. And so, Father God, I just ask that you would use the words from this sermon to strengthen hearts and to encourage us, Lord, and to help us focus on the gospel. In your name, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Did you ever notice how hard it is to ask for help? You know, it struck me about a week ago as I was mulling over this morning's text. I was thinking about it. I was laying awake in my bed at 3 a.m. And I was thinking, why is it so hard to ask for help? It seems that it's kind of obvious, actually. Um, it's pride. You know, perhaps for men, we want to do things by ourselves. And so we don't like needing someone's assistance, even if that means that we do it wrong for the first 10 times. I know that we are all like this to one extent or another. Maybe not with something like how to change your brake pads, but we're like it with other things. Just to give you an example, I would say 90% of the time when people come to me for marriage help, they've already punched the clock on their marriage. In other words, they're not saying, hey, I think there's a problem here that we need to address and could you help us? Instead, it's at the point where it feels as though one, if not both people, have already checked out and they're on their way out the door. Now, why don't most people come sooner? Maybe shame, maybe embarrassment, maybe pride. People struggle with habitual sin, but they don't have the courage to tell a brother or sister in Christ for accountability. Why not? I think it's pride. Even when evangelizing the lost, it's common to hear people say things like, I don't feel like I need Jesus. You know, my life is pretty good. I'm glad that worked out for you. It sounded like you need it. But as for me, everything is fine. You know, Jesus is often viewed as a crutch for the weak. But people say things like, well, not for me. In other words, I'm strong. I have my life together. Everything's going dandy. This is why there's such a stark contrast when we go street evangelizing in Avalon where people feel as though they have their life together versus parts of Rio Grande when we're going to the down and out. What is the common thread, though, in all of these different scenarios? It's pride. So what then do we do with some of the things that the scriptures say very directly about pride? Because James quotes the Old Testament saying, God opposes the proud, opposes in opposition to God. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Luke 1.52, um, we read, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He, speaking of Jesus, and exalted those of humble estate. In Matthew 23.12, Jesus says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Or as we're going to see this morning, in our passage, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. 
you know, as we talk about Advent, the co- we talked last week about how Advent means coming, it means arrival, the manifestation, the appearance. As we talk about the Advent, the coming of Jesus, as to why Jesus came, we need to realize that this is one of the primary reasons that Jesus came. Why did Jesus come in the flesh? Why did he appear? Last week we said he appeared to destroy the works of the devil, and this week we learn that Jesus came to serve you to serve you. Jesus came to serve you. Does that make you a little itchy? Does it make you a little uncomfortable? You know, to pray to God and to say, Lord, serve me. Would you please serve me? There's something that makes us uncomfortable about that. I mean, aren't we supposed to serve him? Isn't that the way it's supposed to work? Well, let's see. We're going to be looking in Matthew at couple passages that are all um, one after another. Matthew chapter 19 is where we're beginning in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, him being Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the young man said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, uh, all these I've kept since I was young. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, when the young man heard this, he went away very sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of God. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And they said, who then can be saved? Notice they didn't say, yeah, I know Jesus, preach it. No, they say, who can be saved then? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's what the young rich ruler, the young man asks. Realize this is mankind's perpetual problem. This is the question that we continue to ask um, when you look and do a survey of world religions, if you were to talk to your fr- to your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, that is the heart of the question that so many people are are wondering about. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? See, but the issue is we are actually asking the wrong question, aren't we? See, every religion, every major religion besides Christianity, teaches some form of I do, and therefore God responds. And so I, I behave well, and then God lets me go to heaven. I, I do this, and then God will forgive me. I do that, and then God will give me a blessing. And this is how every other major religion um, functions, that I do, and then God responds. But realize that every major religion in the world is a shadow. And Jesus Christ points to the only true way. Every other major religion is false. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the only way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. See, every religion in the world basically says, I do, and then God responds with a blessing. But truth be told, that's not reality. And truth be told, perhaps what you believe about Christianity is actually wrong as well. See, quite honestly, this perspective of, you know, I bring my sacrifice, I do my this, I bring my that, I perform X ritual, and then God gives something in response, a blessing, um, he gives this benefit, he gives this forgiveness, he relents his, that perspective is, in a nutshell, it's intertwined with paganism. This is how the idols worshipped. I needed rain, and so I would bring a sacrifice to the temple of Baal, and I would give my sacrifice, and Baal, if he was merciful, would shower his rain upon me. And so I serve the idol. I serve Baal. I serve the Baals. I serve the idol. And then I get rain. I get blessing. I get harvest. This is the way paganism thinks. But look what the Old Testament in the book of Psalms, look what Psalm 50, look what God says about this type of mindset. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, we see in the Old Testament that God commands sacrifice. And so you might be saying, well, this isn't true. What Bill is saying, this isn't true. But look what it says in Psalm 50, beginning in verse 8. But this is God speaking. He says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. In other words, he says, look, I'm not rebuking you right now because you're not bringing sacrifices according to the code that I gave you in the, in, in, the, uh, in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He says, verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house. I will not accept goats from your fold. Why? Verse 10, every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills that you bring me. It's mine. I know all of the birds on the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. I love this. Verse 12, he says, If I were hungry, this is God speaking, I would not tell you. For the world and all of its fullness are mine. You're just giving me back that which I already own. Do I eat the flesh of bulls anyway? Or do I drink the blood of goats? In other words, God's saying, is that what I desire? I want, I'm like, I want a nice big hamburger and a big bowl of goat blood? No. And so what does God want? He tells us in verse 14 and 15. He says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. In other words, a free will, something that you do of your own accord, not because of the law, but because you want to thank God. Perform your vows, the things you say you're going to do to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. He says, I want, I want you to cry out to me when you're in a tough spot. I want you to call out to me when you're in a bind. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. In other words, God is essentially saying, I don't need more service from you. Instead, call upon me. Not out of law, but willingly, a thanksgiving offering, a free will sacrifice, a time of need, and let me serve you. And when I serve you, you will in turn glorify me. You see, what we realize is that God is totally different from what we envision religion to be. 
We have this idea of that I'm serving God and then if I'm a good little boy, he's going to give me this, he's going to give me that. We basically view God like Santa Claus, like he's taking a list, he's checking it twice, he's going to find out if you've been a good boy or a bad boy, if you're naughty or nice, and then he's going to give you what you deserve. But that's not the way God works. To some of you don't get this, what I'm talking about today, and I have been praying that today would be a liberating sermon for you because you always feel guilty. Some of you always feel inadequate. And when we encourage you to do something from the pulpit and we say, you know, it's really important to be making disciples and you just go, well, there's one more thing I'm not doing. Put it in the backpack with the rocks and that's just your perspective. You never feel like you're doing enough. You never feel like you're sacrificing enough. Some of you lie awake at night wondering what you can do for God, what you can sacrifice for God, how you can serve him more because you're not doing enough. You're never enough. And I have, I have a news flash for you. You're not doing enough. You're not doing enough of any of those things. Why? Because what did Jesus say to the rich young man? Or what did he say concerning the rich young man? He said, with man, this is impossible. In other words, you can't do it enough. It's never going to be enough. With man, this is impossible to give away enough and to serve enough and to honor God enough. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You know, and, and this section of scripture is where the, the chapter breaks and the verse breaks. They don't really help us out too much because we start to not realize that this is one continuous flow of thought. And so this is what we see in verse 27, that Peter is just like us. And it says, then, when we see then, it means like immediately Peter's listening to Jesus and Peter replies. And so then Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? In other words, Jesus, you told that rich guy to like sell all his stuff and follow you and he refused, but we didn't. Like we straight up, like I got off that boat. I, there's a bunch of fish. I left all the fish and I came and followed you. And this is what Jesus says to him in verse 28. He said, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, speaking to his immediate 12 right here, you will also sit on 12 thrones and you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone else who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold, in other words, a hundred times back and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. All right, let's think about this. Peter sees this opportunity. Jesus is like, hey, you got to sell everything you have. You got to then give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And so Peter sees this opportunity to do what we would have done in the same situation. Into He wants to point out to Jesus all the ways that he's serving Jesus. He's like, hey, Jesus, let me tell you about what, what I'm doing. We would have done the same thing, probably. Well, what does Jesus say? Does he say, Peter, thank you. Seriously, I don't even know where to begin, Peter. Thank you for serving me in this way. I don't know how to express my gratitude. You've been such a faithful friend. No, that's not what, what Jesus does at all. In many ways, if I could kind of put this in the paraphrased Bill version, 
Jesus does kind of the opposite. Look, if I was going to paraphrase, Jesus responds. This is basically how Jesus responds. He says, wait a second, Peter. Um, yeah, you left your boat and you left your little fishies. And I am going to give you a throne to sit on instead of your boat. And you're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel instead of hoping you catch enough minnows. And everybody else who sacrifices for me, um, I'm going to give them 100-fold what they give up. So if they gave me uh, five loaves of bread, I'm going to give 5,000 back. And I will give them, on top of that, I'm going to give them eternal life. Which, let's be honest, if all I gave were eternal life, it would still be a lot more than anybody deserved. In other words, what is Jesus saying to Peter? He's saying, Peter, nobody outserves me. In glory, Peter, or whoever you are, nobody's going to be talking about everything Peter did. When we're in glory, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you die and you're with the Lord, no one's going to be talking about your faithfulness. No one's going to be talking about the Apostle Paul. No one's going to be talking about John or James or Bartholomew, right? No one's going to be talking about these people. The only one that people will be talking about and praising is Jesus. You see, because even as we say, look what I've done for you, Lord. Look what I'm willing to do for you, Lord. Look what I've sacrificed for you, Lord. Jesus basically says, hold up, I'm giving you a hundredfold back. So even after all that's said and done, they're not going to talk about you. They're going to talk about me because I gave you a hundred more than you gave me. And so you can't outgive me. So Jesus essentially says, I cannot be outserved. The Son of Man came to serve. Not to be served, Peter, but to serve. But he ends this section by saying, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. And that's the end of chapter 19. But then immediately he goes into chapter 20 where he tells this story to make that point. And that's why the chapter breaks aren't always beneficial. So I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but Jesus tells the story about a guy who has some work to do in his, um, in his, on his farm. And so he goes and he hires some day laborers and he says, look, if you come and work on my farm, I'm going to give you a denarius, which is the equivalent of a day's wage. And so he hires people. And then a couple hours later, he goes out and he sees some guys hanging around. He says, do you have work today? And they say, no, we don't have any work. And he says, well, come with me. I'll, I'll put you to work. And this happens a few times, even up until almost the end of the day, he sees some stragglers. And he says, come on, come work a few hours at my place. And then at the end of the day, everybody is in line to get paid. And the people who have just put in like an hour and a half of work, they like cleaned up. They come to Jesus and Jesus gives them a full denarius, a day's wage. And, and as the guys who came at the beginning of the day, first light, as they see those guys who came at the end getting a full day's wage, they're just like, man, they're licking their lips and they are ready because they think they're going to make a bank. And then as it gets on and on and on, they realize that everybody gets the same amount of pay. They got a day's wage. And so the guys who got hired first, um, they, they're mad. They're frustrated. They're angry. And this is the employer's response to them. He says, do you begrudge me of my generosity? Aren't you getting a fair wage? Think about that. 
In other words, Jesus is saying, don't you realize that it isn't about your hard work, but it's about the generosity of God? Yes, some work harder than others, and some, like in the church in Iran, are going to have a a tougher go at it than other places on the planet. But don't you realize it's not about your hard work. It's about the generosity of the one who owns the vineyard. Are you going to work hard and then get mad that the thief on the cross who repents in the last hours of his life has the same eternal life as the Apostle Paul? Does that seem unfair to you? It does if you think your eternal life is about work. But if you realize that neither the thief nor the Apostle Paul deserve anything that they get, you realize it's about the generosity of the one who owns the vineyard, not about the hard work of the one who was hired. See, Christianity isn't about you. It's about Jesus. Christianity isn't about how much you serve Jesus. It's about Jesus serving you. And how will he do that? Well, he tells us in the next verse. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, verse 17, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Well, why Jesus? And the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day he will... Uh, and he will be raised on the third day. So basically, Jesus gives them an insight into how the Son of Man is going to serve. How the Son of Man, who is last, will actually be first. He will become last by being delivered, by being condemned, by being handed over, by being crucified, but being raised. See, this is ultimately how Jesus serves you. Ultimately, Jesus serves you because on the cross, Jesus, though he is innocent and you are guilty, Jesus becomes your whipping boy. That he gets whipped so that you can go free. He gets crucified so that you can walk. He dies so that you can live. Just like we see in the story of Barabbas, the insurrectionist who's allowed to be released while Jesus, the innocent man, is condemned. In the great exchange, Jesus took our punishment so that we could be set free. And so Jesus explains, this is how I'm going to serve, by dying, by being completely abandoned, but being raised. They obviously don't get it, because look at the next verse. Then, what does then mean? Then, (laughs) the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in the kingdom. And Jesus answers, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? Are you able to drink that cup? He's talking about the cup of the wrath of God in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they said to him, we're able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. It is for those who has been, for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard of it, the other, the other apostles, they were indignant at the two brothers. 
What is their desire? What is the desire of, of this, this well-intentioned mom and the sons of Zebedee, James and John? What's, what's their intention? Well, their intention is to be special. Their intention is to earn a spot, to be honored. They want to kind of share in Jesus' spotlight. And so it's like, well, you know, the rising tide raises all ships. So we just kind of like hook up next to Jesus. When he gets bumped up, then we're going to get bumped up and it'll be good for us too. Well, why were the 10 upset? Well, they were upset because they didn't ask before James and John's mom did. They still don't get it. And so Jesus explains. He called out to them and he said, look, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over them. And, and throughout the entire book of Matthew, it's been underscoring Jesus' authority. I'm going to point that out in a minute. And he says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Now catch this. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So follow me because I'm going to start tying this up. Jesus has all authority. In the book of Matthew, that's what Matthew is all about. Jesus' authority as the king. Okay, he received it from the Father in chapter 3 when the Father speaks over the Son in his baptism, this is my beloved Son. In other words, this is, the, this is my heir, the one in whom I am pleased. He maintained his authority in version 2.0 of the Garden of Eden in chapter 4 of Matthew when Satan tempts Jesus and Jesus um, doesn't fall to temptation, but he resists temptation. And so Jesus doesn't pass his authority over to Satan the way Adam did. Instead, Jesus maintains his authority. He then teaches Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus finishes teaching, it says they marveled at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. And then he has this interaction with, uh, with this Roman centurion who talks about how, Jesus, if you just say the word, I know you're going to heal my servant because I recognize authority when I see it. And so then in the next few chapters, Jesus exercises his authority. He commands diseases to leave. He commands demons to go. He commands people to come and follow him. He says to show that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I tell you, pick up your mat and walk. Jesus has all the authority that he could possibly need. He has authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. But he doesn't use his authority to have people serve him. Instead, he flips it upside down and he says, to be great, you need to serve. And to be the greatest, you need to be a slave. Now, some of you don't get where this is headed because you're immediately thinking, how can I serve more? How can I be a slave? You know, sometimes Jesus says things that don't feel like good news. Like when he says in verse 27, whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And some of you are thinking that right now. You're stuck in your old way of thinking. If I want to be great, which I do, then I need to serve more. I need to earn my greatness. I need to become somebody's slave. Newsflash, this verse isn't about you. Don't miss the next verse. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. See, Jesus commands in Matthew 20, 27, whoever would be first among you must be your slave, are not a command for you to obey, not even close. Instead, it's a prophetic pointing towards what he's about to do. 
He's saying, I'm about to be your slave. I'm about to be your whipping boy. I'm about to be the lowest of the low so you can be placed ahead. You see, this is actually not a call for you to go and be a slave. This is a call to, to Jesus. This is a call for Jesus to be a slave to you. It's hard to understand, isn't it? But this is what separates Christianity literally from every other faith on the planet. This idea, which I'm trying to explain, is what separates Christianity from every other faith on the planet. God does not need your service. God is not glorified by your willingness to sign up. Matter of fact, Acts chapter 17 says, nor is he served by human hands at all as though he needed anything since he himself gives to mankind all life, breath, and everything. In other words, God doesn't need what you can accomplish with your own two hands because he gave you your two hands and he gave you the ability to use it. And so you're not actually giving him anything he doesn't have anyway. God is so full. He is so self-sufficient. He is so overflowing in power and life and joy that he glorifies himself by serving us. Luke chapter 12, verse 37. Don't miss these things. Luke 12, 37. Blessed are those servants. I understand the double play here because he's using the word servants. Blessed are those servants whom the master, that's Jesus, finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. We are called servants. We are called the servants of Christ. And at the day of judgment, when Christ returns, he won't go to his servants and say, give me something to eat. Instead, he will say, come sit down. And then he will tie an apron around his waist and he will serve you. He does the creating. He does the sustaining. He does the maintaining. And then he steps in and does the serving too. Why? Why? So Jesus can get 100% of the credit and I can get zero. Not 2% because, oh, I planted a church. No, 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 no. 0%. I get 0% of the credit. Jesus gets 100% of the credit. Listen to me. The invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to be served by Jesus. Do you realize how liberating this truth is? Every time, hear me now, every time Jesus commands you to do something, it is not an invitation for you to serve him, but for him to serve us. When he says, go and make disciples, He's actually saying, go and share what I have done. And as you share, I will give you an insurpassable, indestructible joy that only comes for when you follow my lead. I will even give you words to say. I will use you to do impossible things like bringing a dead soul to life. That's his invitation to be served. He says, you go and obey and I'm going to be with you always. You're going to experience me in power. 
When he says, don't be a drunkard, he's actually saying, Ephesians 5.18, put aside that old wine so I can fill you with new wine. And the new wine will give you so much more joy and pleasure than you could ever imagine. The new wine is out of this world. When he says, be faithful to your spouse, he isn't holding you back from some other pleasures, but he's inviting you to experience true and deep relationship that is designed to model the gospel and point towards the union of Jesus and his bride, the church. Every time Jesus commands us to do something, it's an invitation actually to be served by him. Every time Jesus invites you to sacrifice, it is not out of law to earn something. Sacrifice I do not desire, he says. Instead, it is to empty your hands so that he can fill them up with something far more precious by the power of his Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about how he fills you up with things that are greater, with these unseen spiritual realities. Look, if you feel burdened by the commands of Jesus, you don't understand what I'm talking about. You're thinking like a pagan. See, as we obey, Jesus meets us as our servant. He empowers us. He helps us. This is why the spirit of Jesus, which is what Paul says in Colossians, which is the Holy Spirit, his title that Jesus gives him in John is the helper. Think about that. The Holy Spirit's title is your helper. We aren't his helper. He's our helper. The Spirit of Jesus, even after Jesus serves us by becoming a ransom and paying for our sins to adopt us into his family, then he sends his Spirit to continue to serve us so he can empower us to do the things that we can't do anyway, so we have him doing all the work. And then, yes, to go back to what Jesus said in Matthew, as we follow him, as we become like him, we will participate in the things that he participated in, his cup, his suffering, his joys, his family, his body, his blood. But guess what? As we become like him, he serves us all the more. See, religion says, do this, and then God will do that. But it's a lie. The command that God gives to you is actually an invitation to receive, an invitation to be served by Jesus as his spirit provides us with joy and power. Jesus came to serve you, but because of our sin, we don't want to receive that. Because of our pride, we want to earn something. The bad news is you can't. You'll never earn favor with God You'll never be good enough. The good news is that you don't have to be. He invites you to sit down and he wants to wash your feet. And you say, that is so uncomfortable. That's how Peter felt when Jesus started washing his feet. And Jesus said, Peter, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. See, some of you have been trying so hard to earn favor with God that you've never actually surrendered and let him shamefully, humbly wash your feet. You have to be served by Jesus if you're to enter his kingdom. The Son of Man served you by dying on the cross for your sins, and he wants to serve you today. Are you willing? Are you willing 
to be served? Are you willing to follow the king that serves, the servant king? At your tables, with your family or in a journal, I want you to wrestle with some of these questions. Do you have a hard time asking for help or accepting help when you don't ask for it? Why do you think that is? What does it reveal about your own heart? Try to summarize what you feel like I was attempting to communicate today. How is it about Jesus? How is it more about Jesus serving us than about us serving him? Have you ever stopped trying to earn favor with God and just given up and let him serve you? And maybe you did that 10 years ago, but have you now, as Paul says to the Galatians, who bewitched you? Having come to Christ by faith, are you now trying to be perfected by works? In other words, having come to faith with Jesus serving you by your faith in him, are you now trying to earn favor with him? It's always about faith in Jesus serving you. Do you need to return to the simple gospel? And what does it look like then to become more like Jesus as we serve one another? Because that's what Jesus said. He serves and then he says, as I have loved you, love one another. As I have served you, serve one another. Maybe this Christmas season, God would put it on your heart, someone who you can serve and be like Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would use this message to truly speak to hearts. God, I feel as though this should be a liberating truth. I pray, God, that it would break chains. Pray that people would come to faith for the first time, asking you, Jesus, please, Jesus, serve us. I give up. I surrender. Forgive me. Teach me your ways. God, I pray many would desire that in their hearts and pray it with their mouth. In your name, amen. Guys, we have Christmas Eve service at 4 p.m. on Christmas Eve. I will pre-record that sermon as well. Um, otherwise, have a great Christmas.